All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Misfit Nation. Last episode, we got to hear from Dave Shane. His vision for creating an online dog training site is amazing, and his passion for it are definitely unmatched. Thanks again for being on. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation, and we look forward to where Pup Camp goes from now. In this episode, we go a little bit international. We have author Kirsten McKenzie from New Zealand on to discuss her story. A full-time author, she is a former customs officer and antiques dealer who has also dabbled in film and television. Her historical time slip series, the Old Curiosity Shop series, which includes 15 postcards, The Last Letter, and Telegram Home, have been described as Time Traveler's Wife Meets Far Pavilions and Antiques Roadshow Gone Viral. The series was acquired by Podium Audio in 2020 and is now available on audiobooks. She lives in New Zealand with her husband, her daughters, two rescue cats, and can usually be found procrastinating on Twitter. So without further ado, let's get Miss Kirsten McKenzie on the show. To the Misfit Nation podcast, Miss Kirsten McKenzie from New Zealand. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me today. Oh, it's great to have you on. Uh, I hope, uh, I guess it's morning time there, right? It's uh, mid midday, one thirty. Okay. Yeah, I'm not used to the time zone change here. The furthest I went that way was uh, Korea. Right. Here, so it's a little different. <laughs> yeah, time zone changes are the bane of my life. <laughs> I bet. All right, so if you'd like to, uh, just tell us a little bit about your story from as far back as you want to go. To where and where it got to you now? Okay, uh, well, we'll start from now. I'm a full-time author living in New Zealand with my family and two rescue cats. And as of about ten minutes ago, two fish. But um, <laughs> one of them is one of them is passing as we speak. So uh, I'm not sure I'm going to explain that to my daughter when she gets home. Uh, <laughs> Moving on, um, being an author is my third career. I started out going to university to study computer programming, but decided I hated sitting behind a computer screen. So I quit and joined uh, New Zealand Customs, and I spent 14 years fighting international crime and did a year in the UK as well at Heathrow, and I loved it. And after 14 years, I became an antique dealer, uh, And after 10 years of that, and after the success of my first two books, I quit to become a full-time author. And in full circle, now I sit in front of a computer all day. (laughs) But now you're not programming. (laughs) No, now I'm not programming. Although I can program you a mean game of Snake, if you remember that game. (laughs) That's an old game. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I might have to have you program and send it to me. So what was the, how was it like being a customs agent? I mean, yeah, because you had to deal with a lot of international flyers into New Zealand and to the UK, of course, in Heathrow. What was your biggest challenge there? Uh, my biggest challenge is, was, I should say, uh, I think it was dealing with people's personal biases. First of all, towards me is at the time as a young woman, and then once I got past all that, dealing with the biases of um, staff members who 
and I'm going to say it's the staff members rather than the international travellers, who were operating off old information that they couldn't push past. Does that make sense? So targeting people for perceived risk as opposed to, you know, following the science to actually target real risk. So, you know. Unconscious bias. Yeah, that's the right word, unconscious bias, you know. So are they just really targeting someone because they're wearing a Bob Marley T-shirt? Or can we not just look past that now and <laughs> um, look for more the the guys at the top of the food chain, you know, running the, the drug schemes rather than just the couriers? Right, the guys coming off in the, the high-priced suits and stuff. Coming off yeah, exactly, suits. exactly. So, you know, I, I love being able to fight international crime. There's, you know, we weren't dealing with dead bodies or battered women. Um, and I never thought that I would see the quantities of drugs coming into New Zealand that I saw when I was at Heathrow. Um, but by the time I left customs here in New Zealand, we were experiencing a flood of precursor chemicals coming out of China. And now cocaine is the drug of choice crossing our border, but usually en route to somewhere else. That was my next question. Was it just like a stop off to go somewhere else? Oh, yeah. It's almost like um, you're sending it through the dry cleaners by shipping it through New Zealand. <laughs> Seen as such a low-risk country. Come and dry clean your drugs here. <laughs> it's like money laundering for drugs. Yeah, yeah. money laundering for drugs. Absolutely. <laughs> so but the, the weirdest one was I wasn't in customs at the time, but they, um, they found this shipment of cocaine um, buried in the sand up north um, along the coastline. And they found it because the the couriers had got their car stuck in the sand as they were picking up the shipment that had been tossed over the side of some ship. But instead of just saying, hey, mate, can you give me a hand to tow my, my truck out? They offered some horrendous amount of money, you know, like thousands of dollars to the locals to help them tow their truck out. And the locals were all like, nah, man, that's not normal. So dobbed <laughs> them into the police, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite story. It's outstanding. <laughs> you couldn't write it. If you wrote it, nobody would believe it. But yeah. Not at all. <laughs> if you filmed it, someone would still say you made it up. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I spent all of our lockdown watching um, Narcos and Ozark on Netflix. So I feel that, you know, my uh, cocaine smuggling skills are quite up there. <laughs> and you've so. seen a lot of the techniques of people trying to bring it in. So that helps you out a lot. Yeah, of course. You know, wrapping stuff in tinfoil does not work. You know, doesn't. I used to be the team leader of the dog unit, and it the dogs can sniff through tinfoil. I can tell you that. Dogs are pretty good at that stuff, and once oh, they get yeah. they become like missiles. They go right at it, so it's pretty good. Oh, they are incredible. They really. I was really lucky to have that role. It was a prime role. I was very lucky. And watching Narcos, I'm sure you watched all the both Narcos series, Mexico and. Uh, oh. I did, I did, and I loved it. And then after I'd watched the whole series, then I went on to Google to check the uh, the truthfulness of it. You know, it was mostly true. Um, oh, just horrific. And the, the chances that, you know, sorry, but chances that America had to to nip it in the bud and that they lost. Oh, yes. You know, yeah. You know, uh, but, Kiki or Kiki, the one the one oh, year. Oh, oh, my heart breaks. There was actually a Netflix documentary on him that I watched. I watched before Narcos and then I watched after to see if I remembered it correctly and how close it was. It was actually pretty close. Oh, yeah. Kiki was the death of 
Kiki was probably one of the heart- most heartbreaking things I watched on Netflix during lockdown. Yeah. Yeah, that was horrible. Yeah. So um, you said that on your bio it says you did you dabbled in television and movies. Oh, what, yeah. What kind of characters did you play? Well, if you watch the Spartacus series, you can see me scuttling around the streets as a market woman, but wearing a prosthetic pregnant belly made of lightweight fiberglass. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and at one point I was standing next to Lucy Lawless, who, of course, is a Kiwi, and uh, she's like, oh, you shouldn't be here, you know, in your advanced state of pregnancy, and I'm tapping on my stomach saying, no, no, it's this fiberglass and it's this hollow hollow sound that uh, came back. So very entertaining, but it was just as awkward as being pregnant in real life wearing that prosthetic belly. So, wow. Yeah. Um, so I'm pretty good at having a pretend conversation in, the, in a market or a pretend conversation in the stadium and looking surprised at what's happening around me. Um, I've also fought aliens and Power Rangers. And, I, and I, I've run from militant guards and apocalyptic Disney movies on climate change. I've been murdered twice. So I'm very good at playing a corpse now. Yeah. And then the one that I don't want my children to see is I spent my more than my fair share of time lurking in darkened doorways as a acting as a lady of the night. Uh-huh. So, yeah, but um, mostly, mostly I played a nurse on uh, New Zealand's longest-running soap opera called Shortland Street. So, oh, wow. just a regular nurse in the background, always restricted to seven words or less. Otherwise, they have to pay you more. So <laughs> they don't want to add the budget up. No, no. So it's always things like um, coffee, Doctor Warner, or sorry, I can't. I'm finished. Um, you know, know. Mund- <laughs> mundane lines that are just filler for the uh, main characters. But at least you're in there. You, you wind up in the credits. Yeah, of course. And you know, the best thing about being on a set is it allows me to easily imagine how my books might translate onto screen. And so I, I write them accordingly. You know, you've got to, it, it gives your books a more of a life to them if you can imagine what a character would do if there was a squeaky door or a handprint on the mirror or the musty scent of a shop, a doorbell clanging. So I think it helps. Or a corpse laying in a room. Yeah, or a corpse laying in a room. Absolutely. With Yeah. <laughs> I made it onto the poster for one of those. It was, uh, it was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> So what was your motivation to go into writing or write your first book? So my motivation for writing my first book, 15 Postcards, which is the first book in my time travel trilogy, was when I was an antique dealer, it was a slow day at work, one winter's day, and I was working with my little brother, who's five years younger than me. I don't know. Do you have a little brother? I'm the youngest. Oh, you're the youngest. All right. So I said to my little brother, I'm going to write a book. And he said to me, will you never finish anything? Uh, (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. So I wrote the book, finished it. Didn't really research how hard it was to find a publisher. And so then, of course, found a publisher very quickly. Um, So I realize now how lucky I was at the time. Uh, And my my father died 
um, unexpectedly in 2005, which is why I quit being a, a customs officer and became a antique dealer with my brother to carry on running the family business. So the book was almost a homage to his memory as an being an antique dealer and the protagonist in the book, Sarah Lester, is on a quest to find her missing father. So, you know, we'd all love to revisit someone we've lost that we loved. So that was kind of the motivation behind the first book in the series. And that's gone into the rest of the series as well? Yeah, of course. I mean, she's not going to find her father in the first book. No. <laughs> well, there's a spoiler alert. And every time the book gets turned to a movie, I have totally different actors, just like Dr. <laughs> yeah, or in uh, Days of Our Lives when they killed off Roman and then brought him back with a different face. Yes. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, 130,000 words later, 15, publi- 15 postcards was published. Um and then I thought, well, I better write a second book. Um, and the publisher published that one as well. And then I uh, wrote the third book in the trilogy. And then last year, Podium Audio acquired the audiobook rights to the whole series. And now you can listen to it on Audible as well as read it. That's outstanding. Thank you. That was a highlight of lockdown, getting that email from Podium. <laughs> so. So there's three books in that series right now? Yeah, there's or... three books in the series, and the series is complete. Okay. But, of course, uh, there's some minor characters that took on a life of their own, so they're being moved into a new trilogy of their own. So hopefully the first one of that series will come out this year called Ithaca Bound. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's four other books on your site here, uh, The Forge oh. of and then... Oh, yeah, so I write... Um, to give myself a rest in between the research yeah. required for a time travel trilogy, I write standalone thrillers. Okay. Um, and so there was one point where Painted, uh, which is like a gothic ghost story, was number – oh, no, so Stephen King was number one in the charts. I was number two and Stephen King was number three. He won't remember, but I do. That was a life highlight. <laughs> Someone will remember it. It had to be a screenshot somewhere. Oh, yeah, of course. I scr- screenshot the hell out of that. Yeah, so your book ended between Stephen King. That's that's a good achievement right there. I know. Yeah, so I like, I like to say to um, people who want to buy my books, well, I was only number two in the UK, so I've got some work to do. So, <laughs> yeah. You, you at least beat one of his books. That's good. I know. I know. Exactly. I only wish he knew, but maybe, maybe one day. He probably doesn't even look at the charts anymore. I don't think he needs to. It's a bit like Lee Charles, you know, he sells one book every six seconds, so yeah. Tom's pretty blasé. He just wants to make sure his checks are still coming. That's all he worries about. For sure, for sure. So who was a, like a mentor of yours that kind of, I guess, influenced you to be a writer? Because this probably happened, probably influenced you way earlier before you actually did it. Yeah, well, um, I remember a few years ago now, Ken Follett, you know, the author of Pillars of the Earth, he uh, replied to one of my tweets and said uh, that he'd had 10 misses before he'd had a hit and just to keep going. And so that was probably my, the best advice I've ever, ever had from another author Um, and the best motivation as well, you know, just to, to write 10 books without having a hit 
and then look what yeah. happened after that, you know. So I love that he took the time out to just reply to a, a wannabe author at the time. That means he, he knew he knew the struggle. So. Yeah, of course. And so that's why I always try and lift up other authors and post about them on my author page or put them in my newsletter because everybody needs that first that first helping hand. And I wouldn't be where I am today without, you know, the authors that I've become friends with through various writing groups or attending festivals or, you know, just as an, just as a, a person in the audience. But you meet people at these events. And if you surround yourself with people who are at a similar point in the path as you, you're there to help each other, lift each other up or, um, help help them out of their self-doubt and yeah someone once said a, a rising tide lifts all boats but it also lifts all authors so right. yes yeah. it does and it takes a network to get things going a tribe of right. people to help you yeah it takes a village to get a book published yes. That's it. my daughter she got lucky come right out of high school she published a book wonderful and, and then she went into college to learn how to write after that <laughs> Well, hopefully they didn't destroy her voice. They kind of made her more of a – she critiqued herself a lot harder now, so her next right. book is taking a lot longer to come out. She's actually critiquing herself a lot as she goes. Yeah, I think that becomes easier as well, that like you know what to look for. I remember doing a live reading of my first book before it had come out, and I realized that my character sighed a lot. Like every version of the word sigh, you can imagine, sighed, sighs, sighing. And I realize that you, you don't know what your um, what your flaws are until you hear it from someone else or read out loud like that. And so all those little steps along the way, along the journey, help you refine your craft, whether it's looking for those sorts of repetitive words or crafting a better sentence uh, tighter without all the fluff words, you know, you learn those through talking to others and through just doing it again and again and again. So I can see what Ken Follett meant when he said he had 10 hits, uh, 10 misses before he had a hit. You know, each book becomes better as you go. Right. I think, apart from maybe someone like Margaret Atwell. Or... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even the author of a Harry Potter series, she was turned down by nearly everybody. Yeah, of course. Until she finally got a hit. The person yeah. who took her on is probably very happy right now. Yeah. And of course, but then she also gets one stars. So your books yeah. aren't necessarily for everybody. I mean, the Bible's had one star reviews. So mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, your book isn't for everyone, but your book is for someone. And somebody out there may need to read your book. And you just need to find those those people. And the best way to do that is to do things like your radio show and um, and I think I, I know that you focus a lot on veterans, and I, I'm not a veteran, but I was in the Air Training Corps here in New Zealand for many years in order to give back to an organisation that helped me so much when I was a, a child, you know, a teenage member of cadets. Um, and I love just being able to use those experiences to draft a book that will hopefully be um, appreciative of the armed forces you know in my in my trilogy I talking I'm talk 
talk a lot about pilots and World War II because that's obviously been my love. Um, and I promised my husband I'd include a, a Spitfire in it for him. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and I want to write things that don't denigrate the service of others. Or Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure uh, you're, I know you're proud of what you've done with the, the cadets and stuff. And why don't you talk a little bit about what, what that was about when you went through as a, I guess, as a high school thing, and then you oh. went back and mentor or, or actually work with them? Oh, I just have to say, being in cadets when I was a teenager was probably the best thing I ever did for self-confidence, for leadership skills, for friendship. I mean, I, I married one of my officers um, <laughs> after we had both left, so there was no fraternization. Let's just make that okay. clear. And okay. then, and then I rejoined as an officer in two thousand and four. I saw um, an article in the newspaper about my old unit. And I went along and said to say hi. And one of the guys I um, joined up with was now the unit commander. And before I knew it, he'd got me on a commissioning course. And, yeah, then I was there for the next few years, going back up through the ranks to become um, the flight lieutenant and the executive officer. And now my daughter has just joined and is in her second year. And she's finding the same comradeship and excitement of going gliding and she wants to be on the shooting team and I think it's I know that you have the civil air patrol and I'm actually writing a character into my latest thriller which is a, who is a member of the civil air patrol so right. and, yeah so it's great to be able to spread the word of one of the best youth organizations in the world you know cadet forces whatever you call them in your your own country whether it's the civil air patrol or air cadets or you know, air have- yeah, we call them a reserve officer training corps or junior reserve officer training corps, and that's that's in the schools and stuff. Yeah, and then I mean, definitely have the Civil Air Patrol in, in many you know, yeah. communities still here. It's such an amazing opportunity for kids. You know, you you can fly before you can drive. Right. It's <laughs> um, and you know you're giving them life skills and leadership skills, which helped me so much when I was in customs. Um, I think I was one of the youngest female um, managers there at, at the time. And would I have got there without cadets? Not a, not the slightest, no. So that's a, definitely a, a good spot of your life right there. It taught you a lot for your stepping forward. And now you've passed it on to your daughter. So, yeah, and she listened to you a little bit and went into it. So that's good. Yeah. So anyone listening, make sure your kids sign up. <laughs> I hope they do and get some discipline in them too. Yeah, of course. You know, she finds her own shirts and polishes her shoes and, you know, takes great pride in her, how she presents herself and you know. keeps her off the screen. She's out there oh, doing yeah. stuff. Oh my goodness. TikTok. So yeah. <laughs> anything to keep them off TikTok. Cause that, that'll take the whole day away from them. Yep. Absolutely. We're in the middle of school holidays at the moment. So, uh, there's a lot of TikToking going on. <laughs> so right now it's what, like some of there right now, or is it? No, it's um, it's sort of beginning, at, it's autumn. So we've just had our first, we have four terms a year and we've just finished the first 10 week term. So okay, so midterm break, you call it? Yeah, we call them all spring break, fall break. Yeah. Yeah. Fall break. There we go. Fall break. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, 
when they first started fall break here in the States, it was so that the men can take their sons hunting the first week of hunting season. Oh, right. Now it's for everybody. Okay. <laughs> and then spring break was just so mostly it was for college at first, so they can yeah. let off a lot of steam. And now everyone gets that as well. Okay. <laughs> and you're, the she and you're it. all out of lockdown where you are now. Uh, in Tennessee, we never really locked down. Uh, okay. A lot of states, a lot of states still are locked down. Uh, it just depends on what part of the country you're in right now. Uh, right, like here, we nothing really. Everything stayed open. You just couldn't like eat in restaurants for a little while, okay. and then they basically said you cannot eat in the outside of the restaurant. So you can go get stuff and eat outside, or you can get to go plates or to go beer or to go margaritas. So everything, <laughs> everything was basically normal. But a lot of people just learned to work from home. Yeah, working from home is it's super hard when you've got children in the house. I didn't do any writing for our lockdown last year. Um, I'm, I write a lot better when my children aren't in the house. So, <laughs> quiet time. <laughs> yeah, I definitely need quiet time. I don't write to music or, uh, or anything like that. So I just need quiet time, usually at the dining room table, although I have a beautiful antique desk upstairs in my office, um, oh. which I inherited from my father. Um, and I like to write about things like that in my books. So almost everything that I've written about in the time travel trilogy, I've seen come through the shop one way or another. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's good. I mean, it would be a, a silly brass vase, you know, nothing worth much more than $8 would come in and all of a sudden they go, Oh yes, I might write about a brass vase and put a flower in it and she'll have a memory of her mother. And yeah, so it was great for inspiration. A bit harder now that I'm working full-time from home. But I still love going to um, the shop to help out or tidy up. Or I mean, my brother and his wife run it now, and they're doing a good job, and I love going in to help when I can. I'm sure some of the items that are there that you've either picked up or someone brought in to sell to the shop, they came with a story attached to them, so that kind of helps as much with the writing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Though probably one of the saddest stories I heard was a, a, an older woman was selling um, just an assortment of stuff, and one of them was a little silver cup with the name Lani on it, L-A-N-I, Lani. And I was like, oh, is this your name? And she's like, no, that's my daughter's name. She died. I was like, how do you come back from that with a conversation with a customer? Um, I, I was crying. I was just like... I couldn't couldn't even process the buying the things off it. But also I, I was like, why would you be selling your daughter's silver cup? But yeah, that was very sad. Yeah. Well, when my, my mom died suddenly a couple of years ago and my dad did the same thing. He took a lot of her stuff, like her jewelry and stuff, and oh. he just he went and sold it while we were up there for the, the wake and funeral. And oh. when we seen him do it. My my wife and daughter went behind him and picked it right back up. Yeah, I think, I think people make rash decisions at times of grief. So yeah, it's, I oh. guess it's a way of coping. I'm not sure. Oh, of course, yeah. So my advice to your listeners is, you know, if somebody does pass, just leave it a few weeks. Don't make any decisions straight away. Yeah. Wait, wait it out a little bit. Yeah, wait it out. Because. Then in a couple of weeks, you're going to want to see those things and they I won't be there. So. 
Yeah, and it's heartbreaking when you see things like military medals come across the counter. You know, our military medals in our family are all framed and on the wall, but I can't understand a family disposing of those. You know, find a second cousin that would value them or a you know, distant niece. Don't, I can't imagine selling family medals. That's the one of the, the things I don't understand about running a, you know, a secondhand shop that people don't place value on those sorts of um, things. Right. Yeah. And like yeah. a lot of, no two people are the same. So it's hard to. I know. I know. <laughs> understand what's going on in their mind. Yeah. I've seen a lot of things in storage around here. So I live right near an army base here. So right. I see a lot of things in stores here that blow my mind that are there. Yeah. And then you and then you see uh, newspaper articles. You know, somebody's found a medal from World War One or from the Boer War, and then they're trying to track down the family it belongs to, and then there's like a happy reunion. And that's lovely. That's great. But someone somewhere along the way sold it. Yes. Or, else, or else it was stolen. And, you know, there's an old saying that everything in an antique shop has been stolen at least once in its life, um, which was kind of part of the story as well that in, in 15 postcards. You know, what if the stuff in the shop has been stolen? What's its story then? You know, where did it, where was it when it was first new and pristine and loved by somebody? So right. It's quite nice to think about when this vase was new who did it first go to and who loved it and what was it used for? And how did it make its journey to my counter? Yeah, exactly. Like what, you know, this vase was made in um, Austria or Czechoslovakia or Bohemia, places that don't even exist anymore. Um, how did it get here? I know it didn't walk here on its own. So. No. <laughs> yeah. How did it get here to the other side of the world? Um, did it come with an immigrant? Did it, um, was it, you know, we often have uh, set prop buyers come into the shop, like Spartacus came in and, you know, spent tens and thousands of dollars on props. You know, was it a prop for a movie? You know, how exciting was that? No. <laughs> was it a star before I was? No. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> yeah. And it's going to last longer than me as well, and which is which is another reason to write a book. And if you're thinking about writing a book, just do it. Don't worry about the gatekeepers. Um, write your book, publish it, and that book is going to live on well beyond you, which is a nice thing to to know that somewhere on a dusty shelf in a secondhand bookshop one day there'll be a book written by grandma or cousin Jim, and it will live on. Definitely. I mean, I have I have two I'm working on right now. So, in between my school stuff, I do that, and and the podcast, of course. Yeah. <laughs> what a myself... wonderful to run a podcast, though. You must get to speak to dozens of interesting people. Yeah, I mean, so far I've got I've met I've met a lot of people through the podcast now, and I started off just using uh, basically with friends of mine or former soldiers, and then I branched out to find out entrepreneurs and now authors, and I'm trying to find distillers next to learn about moonshine and stuff. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so you could be a, uh, a a distiller of illicit moonshine as an ex-soldier up in the um, up in the bush writing your book. 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a book in itself, how you got to that path and fighting off bears and all the rest of it. I don't know if you have bears where you are, but. Yeah, we do. <laughs> well, there we go. The book has almost written itself, Rich. We got all tidbits right there. I'm good. I'm writing notes. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm just on the end of Twitter, usually, if you need any help. All right. I'll, I'll look you up on Twitter so we're connected there. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I, I was on Twitter years before I was an author, so it's just Kiwi Mrs. Mac. That's, okay. uh, that's my Twitter handle. Um, I do spend far too long procrastinating on there, but I've also met some amazing people online that have gone on to be great friends in real life. So That's good. Yeah. So if you could give advice to a budding author, someone that wants mm -hmm. to become an author, what would you tell them? I would say find your tribe. It's all very well hiding in a freezing Parisian garret working on the next great book, but you need friends and you need inspiration. And so you need to surround yourself with other people like you. And my second one is that writer's block is a legitimate excuse to watch Netflix and go shopping. I mean, your brain, <laughs> your brain needs a break. So don't beat yourself up if you go, oh, I haven't written anything for two days or two weeks. So what? Go for a walk. You know, look at a tree or in a shop window or watch some, you know, I mean, I was going to say mothers in a playground, but that might be a bit dodge. Um, <laughs> watch some people walking past. <laughs> in the park, not near a playground at all. Um, and, just imagine, and just imagine writing about them, write about their shopping trip. You know, I know that I can write 374 words in 10 minutes. I do word sprints. That's how I write. So every 10, if I set the timer for 10 minutes, I can write 374 words without taking a drink of water or looking out the window or answering my phone. Um, and that's how I write my books. And you don't get writer's block if you know that you're going to write for a five-minute word sprint about the green leaves on the tree or the decanters on your silver tray. Just write some rubbish, and then once you've got some rubbish, you can edit it into really good words. That's great so, advice. Yeah. Yeah. So two lots of advice there. Find your tribe, and writer's block is not – going to stop you writing for two years it's a temporary thing where your brain just needs a break and then give it a break and then go and do a word sprint start out with a two minute word sprint and then a five minute word sprint and I do 10 minutes I I lose focus after that but that's been the one thing that's really worked well for me so that's a pretty good sprint 374 words yeah 10 minutes and then take a break and then come back when you're fresh that's good yeah. Then another 10 minutes and then another 10 minutes and then I've done a 1,000 words and whew, I can sign off for the day. Yeah. And that's perfect. That's a good day. Yeah, of course. So other than Twitter, how can, uh, how can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, listeners can get in touch with me, Kiwi Mrs. Mac on Twitter, Kiwi Mrs. Mac on Instagram, Kirsten McKenzie author on Facebook, and because my daughters were on TikTok for so long, I have joined TikTok under Kiwi Mrs. Mac, and now I'm paying my children to make my TikToks for me. Outstanding. <laughs> I mean, I'm too old to 
try and learn a whole new platform. But um, I mean, I'm not that old, but I'm too old for TikTok, I think. But there's a whole author world on TikTok called BookTok, and I love it. And so I can see how they fall down that um, that rabbit hole of spending a day just watching other people's creative TikToks. So, yeah. That's good. You're keeping them employed too. That's good. Yeah, keeping them employed. $3 a TikTok. Thanks for coming. Um, yeah. That's so, outstanding. Yeah. Well, Kirsten, thanks for coming on. It's great talking to you. Great chat. I'd love to have you on again in the future once you get your next uh, novel ready or whenever oh, you can talk again. Absolutely love it. It was such a fabulous podcast. Probably the best one I've done. Thank you. And I'll let you know when it's live. Okay. Thank you so much, Rich. Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. That was great chatting with Kirsten McKenzie. She was great to chat with, and her work is truly awesome. We look forward to getting on her on here again. So you know how we do this. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on The Misfit Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. We appreciate you. As always, till next time, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling. Because we are The Misfit Nation. <laughs>